So every single year at this time, when people find that I'm a pastor, they always say, well, this must be the busiest time of the year for you. And uh, they're right, it is a busy time of the year, but I always uh, get an opportunity to talk about this time of the year with people who often don't have any idea of what this time of the year actually means. We live in a time now where our culture that we are surrounded by understands less and less of Christianity. They really don't know what it all means. They, they've got portions and parts, and often their view of Christianity is very eclectic to say the best. They mix and match from different ideas, philosophies, and religions around the world, and they come up with something that they can handle and suits themselves and so forth. And sometimes they identify that as Christianity. Other times they just identify it as being spiritual. And maybe you've found that to be true amongst your friends. As you begin to talk to them about Christianity, you kind of see that the wheels are spinning and they're really thinking about what you're saying and they're, they're trying to understand as you're explaining these things called the cross and resurrection and crucifixion and sin and so forth. Today, many don't have the same definition or frame of reference that we did 30, 40 years ago. We as a nation, as the world around us today, take this day to remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And without the crucifixion of Christ, we could never get to the resurrection. We could never get to that time where we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ finished everything that he came to accomplish. But that being said, We need to understand what happened at this moment that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Many today simply reduce it to the idea that Jesus was a simple martyr. And he simply died for something that he personally believed in. That couldn't be farther from the truth. This was so much greater, this event in history, than just simply a martyr dying for a cause. In fact, you'll get many individuals who are willing to die for a cause, even if you see that cause to be foolish. However, when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what I call the sunset of Christianity, in this moment, one of the most unique transactions took place between God and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So to explain this event, I thought we would take a a trip back 2,000 years ago to the very first time that Christianity had to be explained to people. The very first time that individuals began to question and observe what God was doing in a new way there in Jerusalem. And let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and discover the explanation that Peter gave for the events that they witnessed and took place before them. Many who saw the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit and the disciples coming out on the rooftops and they were praising God in languages unbeknownst to themselves but understood by the vast crowd that had swollen Jerusalem to almost twice its population. It was a unique moment in history. And many concluded simply that the disciples had started drinking early that day. 
Well, they had Bandino Barneys before everybody else, you know. But then Peter gives an explanation to everybody exactly what was taking place. The fulfillment of everything that God had promised throughout the Old Testament had now taken place in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we come to understand, I'd like to take three verses today and Sunday. It's always a two-parter. Because again, we can't really enjoy the sunrise until we first go through the sunset. And as a church, I want all of us to be aware of exactly what Jesus Christ did at that moment, those six hours that he hung on the cross. What took place at that moment between him and God the Father? So let us begin by looking in chapter 2, verse 22. As Peter gives an explanation for the supernatural experience and the observation of tongues being spoken unbeknownst to the disciples, he then brings it to a summary point at this moment where he begins to bring things to the uh, point where he's ready to get to the conclusion and he's ready to call these people in repentance to Christ. He takes this one summary point in verses 22, 23, and 24, excuse me, to explain to them exactly what is transpiring. And in this summary point, we have a beautifully simplistic understanding of Christianity. In verse 22, Peter states, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. This is Christianity 101 in cliff note form. This is what it's all about. Peter begins by testifying and reminding them of who the person of Jesus Christ actually is. He was much more than just simply a man, a good teacher, or a prophet of God. The Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus proclaimed it himself, that he not only was a man, but he was God also. It is a unique uh, doctrine to Christianity where God himself stepped out of heaven for the purpose of interacting with his creation, uh, not only uh, once again reminding of his creation of the truth that God had set forth in the Old Testament, but also coming to pay a price that mankind could not pay for themselves. It's an extraordinary understanding. And Peter says there's three ways that God the Father attested to the identity of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians need to live in the understanding of who Jesus Christ truly is. If we live as individual believers and followers of Jesus Christ, and we only believe that he was a good man, a good teacher, a prophet of God, then he is no better than Muhammad, Buddha, or any of the others. This is the opportunity for Jesus Christ to stand head and shoulders above any other religious figure in history. 
Because he wasn't a mere man, he was God and is God and is at the right hand of God today. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to walk in that understanding. We need to live within that authority. We need to exemplify for the people around us that we are new creations because of what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. So Peter says to them, reminding them of the mighty works He reminds them of the wonders and the signs in which Jesus performed before them. It is interesting that that Peter is speaking to an audience just simply 40 days removed from the actual crucifixion. Undoubtedly, now at the Feast of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2, many of these same people were undoubtedly in Jerusalem during the time of the crucifixion. Certainly, they observed the last week of Jesus' life, and as a result, when he talks about the mighty works, when he talks about the wonders, when he talks about the signs, they have a first-hand knowledge of these events, and none of them are recorded to to say that they disagreed with what Peter was saying. None of these eyewitnesses took uh, objection or took uh, a, a stance of, uh, of opposition to what Peter was saying, they absolutely appear to agree with the, uh, the idea that God manifested himself through Jesus in this way. When the Bible talks about mighty works, it talks about miracles that demonstrated the great power of God. Undoubtedly, that young girl who was raised from the dead would fulfill that great power and amplify the person of Jesus Christ and his identity. Or as Jesus walked into the graveyard and he called Lazarus forward. Or the time that he made the fish and loaves feed 5,000 people. In each and every case, God's power was demonstrated in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But there were also wonders that accompanied his arrival. Those wonders were the star that shined brightly at his birth as he was obscurely born in a barn in Bethlehem. He was announced by angels to all of creation that the Savior had come and was born. But there were also signs that followed him that Peter now brings our attention to. The signs that he is talking about are the prophecies in which Jesus fulfilled in this 33-year lifespan in one person that never left Jerusalem, Israel, or went farther than 100 miles than his hometown. Jesus Christ fulfilled over 333 prophecies of the Old Testament in the life of one individual. Everything that the Bible said the Messiah would do accomplished all the signs and wonders that he would accompany and the miracles in which he wrought and displayed. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled them all. Now, many people at this point would object to the conversation and say, well, those fulfillments obviously were a result of collusion between the writers of the Bible. They would would object to what I was saying and say, well, they got together and they agreed on these things. It's impossible for that to be the case. 
66 books by 40 different authors over 100 or 1,500 years absolutely eliminates the possibility of collusion amongst the authors. If that wasn't sufficient, as we demonstrated once before here at church, the mathematical probability of Jesus Christ fulfilling eight prophecies, let alone all 333, is an absolute impossibility. In fact, mathematicians have done this. And we've stated this before, and some of you have asked for it again. They took eight prophecies, and they took the mathematical probability of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person over the course of 33 years. And they wanted to know what the mathematical probability would be for eight of these prophecies to be fulfilled. The prophecies that they selected was, number one, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Number two, a messenger that would prepare the way for the Messiah. Number three, a Messiah who will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. The Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. Number four, the Messiah, number five, will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Number six, the betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's field. Number seven, the Messiah will remain silent in the midst of his affliction. And number eight, that the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced. Assigning mathematics. It's good to know that I'm going through puberty at 50. It's interesting for me that after the probability of those eight prophecies are calculated, they came to the conclusion that it would be one in 10 to the 17th power possible for one person to fulfill just eight of these prophecies. That is 100 quadrillion, one in 100 quadrillion, the possibility of one person fulfilling any of those prophecies. Now, let me give you some perspective. If we were to take a silver dollar, paint it red, and stack silver dollars over the entire face of the state of Texas, two feet deep, the probability of one picking out of all of those silver dollars, the one painted red, is exactly the same probability as one in 10 to the 17th power. Now for fun, because I know many of you are overachievers. If Jesus Christ was to fulfill 48 of the 333, which he did fulfill all of these, 48 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus is 1 to 10 in the 157th power. The smallest item or matter on the earth today is an electron. If I were to take electrons and line them up in a straight line one inch long, and I were to count 250 electrons per minute it would take me 19 million years to count all of those electrons in one inch of electrons stacked one right next to each other. And that is the same probability. Now, if we take it to the next level, if we take a cube, one inch by one inch by one inch, and fill it with electrons, and I paint one of those electrons red and I ask someone blindfolded to reach in and pick out the one electron that is painted red amongst them all, 
That is the same probability as Jesus 1 to 10 to the 157th power. That's only for 48 prophecies. These calculations were not done by Christians. These were done by secular mathematicians who wanted to see what the probability was, and they used conservative numbers to come to these conclusions. As a result, we find that it's almost impossible for any one person to accidentally fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Jesus, and that's exactly what Peter says to these people. The signs in which you saw accomplished and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ is clearly a testament to who Jesus Christ is. So number one, If we're going to understand Christianity properly, we must first and foremost understand who Jesus is. If we're going to understand Christianity properly, we have to also understand that this was all according to the plan of God. Read with me here in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attest to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. This was the plan from the very beginning. God illustrated that through the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come his first time and he would suffer. God knew and put this plan in motion before the foundations of the world, knowing full well that his creation would fall. And as a result, sin would enter in. And because of sin, death would dominate his perfect creation. God was fully prepared in the wake of that knowledge to pre-prepare for the salvation of those who are his, from the creation that has fallen. This was a plan of God. This wasn't a plan of the Jewish leaders or of the Jewish people or of the Romans. This was a plan that God put in motion way before you and I were ever thought of. And as a result, it was fulfilled perfectly. Now, shadows of this plan were found all throughout the Old Testament. There's no better illustration of this than Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham takes his only son and takes him up the side of Mount Moriah, proclaiming to his uh, stewards and staff that he is going to the top of the mountain with his son to worship God, knowing full well that three days earlier God had told Abraham that his son would be required as a sacrifice. His only son would be required as a sacrifice. And in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was dead at that point. But Abraham had faith in God and knew that even if he sacrificed his son for the purposes that God had put forward, somehow, someway, the promises that God had made to Abraham to fulfill through Isaac would still be fulfilled one way or another, that if Isaac would be resurrected or however God saw it fit, God, I should say, Abraham knew that God would be faithful. As Abraham was leading his son, often we have pictures in our mind that Abraham was leading a little boy up that mountain, but more scholars now now than ever believe that he was in his 30s. 
And when Abraham and Isaac got to the top of the mountain and went to sacrifice, Isaac immediately saw and knew that the sacrifice had not been taken with them. Abraham told Isaac what the uh, Lord had prescribed and what he had commanded. And Isaac submitted to his father, laid there on the altar, about to be sacrificed by his father who had raised the knife when God interceded from heaven. Stopping Abraham at that very moment and announcing and declaring to all that he himself would provide himself a sacrifice for the world. That mountain that Abraham walked up that was known as Moriah in the Old Testament in the New Testament is known as Calvary. And 2,000 years later, it wasn't Abraham's son taking the wood up on his back to the top of the mountain. It was the Son of God carrying the cross on top of his back to the top of the hill where he was crucified for you and I. This was the prescribed manner in which God put forward from the foundations of the world that man could be saved in and through Christ in Christ alone. But in that moment of crucifixion, a prophecy is given in Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Let me read this to you. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The prophet asks. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Christ was brought and crucified that day, the day that we remember this evening, there are three significant hours of that crucifixion that we must pay attention to and we must understand for us to fully comprehend and to appreciate all that Jesus Christ has done for us. At nine o'clock, he was crucified between two thieves. He hung there for three hours from 9 to 12. His wrist pierced, his feet pierced, his back completely shredded from the uh, cat of 39 tails that he uh, was whipped with 39 times. And as a result, he was in excruciating pain. In a position of crucifixion, most died from suffocation because they couldn't continuously push themselves up to breathe and to allow the oxygen into their lungs and then to exhale. And each and every time Jesus took a breath for three hours, he had to push himself up on those nails 
scraping his back against the upper beam or the center beam of the cross that had been shredded by the cat of nine tails. And then we come to 12 noon, a period in time when the sun should be shining the, bright, the brightest. And yet it was at this time that the Bible says that it became pitch black. And for three hours, the darkness covered the earth. And in those three hours, one of the greatest eternal transactions was taking place between God and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This transaction was on our behalf. Those witnessing the cross from their perspective didn't fully understand what was happening at that moment. We find speculation and conjecture from those actually witnessing the crucifixion at that time. But in those three hours, those three hours of darkness, it is clear that three significant events had taken place on our behalf. The darkness itself is the first revelation of what took place on the cross. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of encroaching darkness seems to always indicate God's judgment. For Amos wrote, he said, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon, an actual prophecy of this particular time. And I will darken the earth in, a, in broad daylight. And then Joel also speaks of this time. Then the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. And the stars diminish in their brightness. One who looks at the imagery of the Bible, looking at the significance of color and the images that God uses to describe certain events, wrote this concerning this moment. Whenever the color black is used in the Bible, it often associated with the threatening presence of God in dark times of divine judgment upon sin and evil. Throughout the Old Testament, images of of the coming of God's judgment are painted in hues of darkness and blackness. Number one, at those three hours, God poured his eternal judgment on the shoulders of his only begotten son. For on those shoulders were the sins of the world. He bore the weight of those sins and took the full blast of the wrath of God upon himself that was destined for you and I. Christ took that for us. And the judgment of God was upon him at that moment. Every sin, past, present, and future that we would ever commit were on Christ's shoulders at that moment. And the wrath of God was poured out in such a unique and overwhelming way. You and I can't even imagine what the wrath of God is actually like. Today we live in a world without consequence. We live in a world that uh, abandons responsibility like it doesn't even exist. 
But at that moment, on that day, in that moment of darkness, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God that you and I were destined to experience. And this is something that we must comprehend. The wrath of God is something that is dreadful, horrific. I used to read the book of Revelation with, with great ex, uh, excitement and joy, thinking, oh, this is going to be so cool when these end time events start unfolding before us. And then as I grew in, my, in, in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I started to see the wrath of God for what it looks like upon fallen creation. And I said to myself, oh Lord, allow me to take the gospel to each and every person so they don't have to experience that for themselves. Jesus Christ at that moment bore the wrath for you and I. One of my favorite pastors, Chuck Swindoll, stated it this way. He says, Christ gave his life on the cross in order to satisfy God's holy wrath on sin. The most significant moment in redemptive history was when Jesus bore the sins which the old covenant sacrifice could only cover. As he bore the sins of everyone past, present, and future, he became sin on our behalf. But then there was the second moment within that darkness. It was a moment where Jesus cried out from the darkness. And as he cried out, his words are recorded for us in Matthew 27, 46. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment that the communion, the intimate relationship with the Father and the Son was severed by the sin that Christ was paying for upon the cross. And at that moment, Jesus, for the first time, felt what it felt like to be separated from God the Father. And he cried out in the midst of that darkness, in the anguish of that separation, one who believes it was the most horrific period of time for, uh, for Jesus and the cross, not the physical pain in which he endured for you and I, but the spiritual separation from his father. And he, at that moment, field felt for the first time what each and every person lives in daily, who are not in Christ. He felt alone, separated from God. I think it is interesting that as we continue in the development of our culture and in the abandonment of God within our culture, I think it is interesting how many people today are grievously struggling with loneliness. I'm not just saying they're lonely at certain times, but I'm saying that they're lonely continuously. From the time that they get up to the time that they go to bed, they are reminded constantly of their uh, being alone in this world. Some have even stated that even when I'm with people or in a crowded room or in a mall, I still feel alone in and of myself. It is the number one reason that people are seeking psychiatric help in our country today, feeling alone. Little do they know that that aching, that aloneness, is nothing that's going to be fulfilled by this world. They can have all the relationships that they want. 
They can hit as many people and friends on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat that they can possibly accumulate and yet still feel alone in life. The only thing that will satisfy that deep yearning, a need for relationship is the ultimate relationship between man and God through the person of Christ Jesus. That's when we will finally cease from feeling alone. Now, some Christians have stated to me, you know, I I still struggle with loneliness. And my advice to them is this. Throw yourself into the arms of God. Learning about Him, knowing Him, understanding Him from cover to cover of the Bible. Allowing yourself from Genesis to Revelation to understand the heart of God. Because if you only see snapshots and pictures of an individual, you will never truly understand that individual or know that individual, will you? We all, unfortunately, frequent Facebook or Instagram. And people put up snapshots of individual segments of their life. From those individual segments, can you honestly tell me that you personally know that individual? No, you just know what they're revealing to you. And I wish somebody would explain to them or somebody would pass a law in our nation called the TMI law, too much information. I'm sorry you were gassy after that burrito, but it's nothing that has to be announced on Instagram, okay? Let's be honest, right? But social media has not drawn our society closer together. It has severed it and separated it even further. That's not me saying that. That's the experts saying this. But ultimately, we are never going to cease from feeling alone until we allow God to satisfy the ultimate relationship that we are missing between Him and I through the person of Jesus Christ. That separation is huge. And we need to understand it and to experience it. I believe that loneliness is one of the echoes drawing you to God. Third, in that moment of darkness, Jesus hung his, cross, hung his head, dismissed his spirit, and died. The ultimate effect of sin, death, Before he died, he cried out, it is finished. Anyone who would believe in me will not experience the wrath of God, for I have experienced that for them. For anyone who will believe in me and follow me, they will not experience the separation from God because I have experienced it for them. Anyone who believes in me though they may die physically, will live spiritually forever with me in eternity because I died for them. From the foundations of the world, God said that the penalty for sin is death. Man reaped what he had sown in the garden and experienced death for himself. Now God says, I have come and I have experienced the judgment of sin. 
I've experienced the separation of sin and I've experienced the death from sin. And anyone who will place their faith and trust in me will not be subjected to those, but will live for all eternity in heaven with me. But as Peter then brings us to the conclusion, as he moves now further in verse 23 of our text, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was it. This is the rubber hits the road moment of the message. This was the realization that these individuals who were inquiring and also criticizing what God was doing at that moment were guilty before God. I believe that it is certainly possible that being 40 days removed from the crucifixion, that these same individuals stood in the crowd. And when Pilate brought Christ before the people, it was these individuals, stirred by the religious leaders, that cried out for Barabbas and shouted, Crucify for Christ. Hey, it was you who rejected the Messiah in which God had attested through the mighty works, the miracles, the wonders, and the signs. It was this Christ that you rejected that Jesus then, that God put on the cross to experience his judgment, separation, and death. It was him that you crucified. It was him that you rejected. It was him that you are guilty of calling a liar and seeing him to death. Let's be honest. In our society today, we try to shed guilt any way we personally can. In fact, now we live in a society where the guilty are going free. We have just seen that in Chicago, a person with 16 felony indictments can go before the court and our state's attorney drops the charges. We are shedding the responsibility of guilt every way we can by not holding to the responsibilities and being accountable for our own personal actions. So understand this, that the corruption that we see in our culture today and in our country today in by no means influences God. God knows exactly what has happened. God will hold these people accountable. In fact, we see God cleaning his church now, don't we? Ministry after ministry being exposed of impropriety. God is moving and working and bringing the things out of the darkness into the light. God holding people accountable. Let us understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are guilty before God. Hey, I'm not trying to condemn you. You're already condemned. I didn't say that. Jesus did. And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would be condemned also. These people, because they possibly were the ones who cried crucifixion, when they heard Peter say that, they said, yes, that was us. That was me. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was saying possibly, but I was in that fervor, that mob mentality, and I shouted out, crucify. And now I realize that he's my Messiah. And I called for his execution. This is enormous. 
We have to understand, if we're going to truly appreciate a Savior, we have to understand that we are a person in need of a Savior. That it's our sin that has brought us to this point. And we need to be broken. We need to be convicted. And we need to allow that guilt to have its perfect work in us. But once we come to Jesus Christ, it is at that moment that we can shed that guilt. Even though Paul wrestled with guilt from his past life. He constantly reminded himself, now that I'm a new creation in Christ, I can allow that guilt to be shed away because of what Christ has done for me. These individuals did lead him to that point of crucifixion. And as a result, they understood their guilt before God. Paul said it this way. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't one person that is exempt from that verse. All have sinned before God. And then Paul went on to say, though, but the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Christianity. This is why we gather together and worship Jesus for what he has done. This is the moment that we realize what happened on the cross. And now I can leave here tonight thankful and grateful for all that Jesus Christ has done for me. And from the very beginning, Jesus knew that this was his mission. He did not do this for you and I simply out of obligation or due to the fact that it was the plan and purpose of the Father for him specifically. For God made it abundantly clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is Christianity. To enjoy the sunrise, we must first see the sunset. Last, this Tuesday... Dean and I and the mother-in-law that I love so much took a little trip. We took a day excursion. We went out to Galena. We had a beautiful day in the 70-degree weather after the blizzard of Sunday, only in Chicago. And we had a gorgeous day just being out in the sun and just enjoying all that God had blessed us with in that day. And it was almost, I could say, a perfect day. But as we concluded that evening, we went to one of my favorite restaurants. And it's on one of the cliffs looking over the Mississippi River. And we were sitting next to the window. And at the end of our meal, God showed us grace one step further by giving us one of the glorious sunsets that you could ever see. And initially, I was sad because the day was coming to an end. As we often contemplate the sunset, we often conclude this is the end of something. But in actuality, though the sunset and the darkness may grow, it's only the beginning of something new, isn't it? And if Jesus Christ simply died in that hour of darkness, in those three hours of darkness upon the cross you and I could sit here maybe wondering if he was who he said he was. But the sun set 
led to the sunrise. And as we come and gather this Sunday, we are going to celebrate the newness of life in Jesus Christ. You and I today, we understand now what Christ has gone through with us, for us. As we close in communion today, let us remember all that we have discussed. Let us consider all that God has done for us. Let us remember what he suffered upon the cross for us. Today in our world, we would love to have a Christianity apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. I say there is no Christianity except through the cross of Christ. And each and every person that I have ever met that has turned to Jesus Christ as their Savior has become the new person that God has promised that they would become. Experiencing a love, a joy, a peace that they had never experienced previously. Even though being alone, they felt that God was always with them. And so the deepest longing of loneliness was satisfied not by an individual, but the God of all the universe. And all this is possible because of what Christ has done for us.